It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 18. This is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guests today are Annie Salafsky and Susan Uchik of Helsing Junction Farm, south of Olympia, Washington. Annie and Susan started their CSA in 1992 and have grown to over 1,000 members in the meantime. We talked about improving nutrient density, keeping a farming partnership vibrant, managing logistics, and how they built Helsing Junction around their families and their personal needs. I feel really fortunate to have had Annie and Susan on the show. I think this has been a, this was a really informative episode. You know, I also want to say something else that I feel fortunate for. I I feel fortunate for all the listeners that I've got here. Um, You know, it's been it's been really exciting since we launched the show in February. We've gotten some great feedback. We've had fantastic suggestions for guests and really wonderful support from the community. And I hope you continue to find value in the show. I feel extremely fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to these farmers. And I really do hope it's making a difference in your lives. Thank you very much for tuning in. And and now we're going to do a little thing from our sponsors, and then we're going to get on with the show. Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Osborne Seed Company, founded by seed professionals and dedicated to serving professional growers of all scales. Osborne Seed provides quality seeds, excellent customer service, and a fantastic selection. OsborneSeed.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. Annie and Susan, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us. It's so great to have you guys here. This is my first start. This is a, a nice milestone for, for the Farmer to Farmer podcast. This is our first two guest interview. I thought we'd just jump in and start by having you guys tell me a little bit about your your farming operation about Helsing Junction and and how you got into farming and and how you developed your CSA and and what that's turned into now. You want to take that, Sue? Sure. Um, yeah, we have been running our CSA for about twenty five years. Um, I started farming um, when I was right out of college. I did not study farming in college, but I started um, right after college, and <clears throat> essentially I started farming because I didn't want to put my son in daycare. That was one of the big motivating factors for me. Um, and then um, uh, starting starting in uh, the first three years, um, we I, I just grew um, flowers and herbs and then um, eventually started the CSA uh, with my former husband, actually. And then he dropped out and then um, I met Annie. Um, Annie and I met while well, she was working on another farm, and so we decided we'd try to do the CSA together, and that was 25 years ago. Um, but really what motivated both of us and what's been motivating us um, all along is to kind of build our business around our own personal needs. So, like I said, when I had my son, I just didn't want to put him in daycare, so I decided to do um, a farming endeavor so I could have him at home. Um, and then my background is I'm from suburban New Jersey and grew up with um, my Croatian grandparents in my life who all farmed and kind of did um, a seasonal diet, really. And so uh, it was a, you know, kind of a natural transition as an adult to just, you know, keep that going. I never have really strayed from eating a seasonal diet my whole life. And I feel like the foundation that my parents and grandparents gave me with the gardening and putting food up and like eating that way has been really beneficial. And it's um, totally driven my adult life really and, and my, my business. So um, anyway, uh, Annie, do you want to share your story? <laughs> um, I'm from suburban Chicago originally. 
And um, my best friend's older sister was the only hippie I knew in town. And she said she was going to go to Evergreen State College and study farming. So I decided just to copy her and do that too, um, which she never ended up doing that, but I eventually did. And um, once I started, I was definitely hooked. And I took the farming program at Evergreen, and I worked on the college farm there and gained lots of experience and have been happily farming ever since. I, I was kind of curious about that, how you guys ended up from Chicago and New Jersey out on the... I mean, I know everybody moves to the West Coast sooner or later, but to actually end up, uh, you know, living in Seattle. And and this would have been right around the time that Seattle was starting to be hip, if I remember right. It was right around the time that I left, of course. Yeah, and, I uh, moved here in 1980 and, um, oh. and went to Evergreen as well. And so actually both Andy and I are Evergreen um, alum, and, but I studied uh, art there. I'm actually a visual artist as well. So I never did study farming there, but... Um, but there was a lot of opportunity in the um, Thurston County area, which is where Evergreen is in Washington State, um, that kind of afforded a farming experience. So I, I took a job on a farm first and then eventually um, bought my own farm and started my own farm. But, yeah, um, the West Coast beckoned. I, I woke, The first day I uh, moved here, I woke up. It was uh, May, 18th, ni- May 18th, 1980, the morning of uh, Mount St. Helens erupting. So that was my uh, introduction to the Northwest, and I was hooked. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's the sort of phenomenon. You know, you get that once, and then it, it hasn't happened since. Yeah, so we had never seen that, that Has that been Jersey. kind of a letdown for you? <laughs> no, yeah. no, not, absolutely not. The beauty of the Northwest is never um, evaded. I love the Northwest still. And... Um, Really, because I was raised, my grandparents had a place in New York State, so I was raised like in the woods a lot and and, um, had a lot of, you know, just growing up experience in nature. And um, I think that was really important, too, um, in, you know, forming my adult life. I love being outside in the nature and and the Northwest is just really a beautiful place. And it never has, I've never lost that, you know, admiration or whatever of the beauty here. I love it. It really is gorgeous. It is. And you guys are down just off the south end of Puget Sound, right? Yeah, we're about 20 miles south of Lindsay. And we're in the Chehalis River Valley, which is the second largest watershed in the state. So we are right on the river. And um, it's, you know, beautiful. We have amazing wildlife here. A lot of our farming practices are, you know, part of, are part of, you know, maintaining that open space for all the different wildlife that is in our area and birds and pollinators and all that. So yeah, being on the river, of course, we have a lot of salmon and um, that's something that we kind of pay attention to in, in terms of farming, just all the runoff and, you know. Yeah, I think that was probably makes it a natural to go into it. Well, you guys are from Evergreen State, so obviously the organic farming thing was uh, was probably, like me, there, there never really seemed to be another option when I got into agriculture. Was that kind of how you guys got into the organic side of things? Yeah. And I mean, as an eater, first and foremost, and someone who was seeking information about nutrition and just had a strong intuitive feeling that food was a really central issue to the health of the planet and like the health of our bodies and really driven to find healthy sources of food to the point of probably growing it and um, really, uh, you know, just realizing that, you know, there's a sort of idea that 
food, that organic food is elitist. Um, you know, it kind of has this elitist taint, but truly, it, for all of human history, as long as there's been agriculture, it's been organic agriculture and it's been local agriculture. So, you know, it's a very resonant issue for for everyone all around the globe and a very uniting issue also. You guys got into CSA very early on, right? You, If I if I understand right, you, you'd started the farm already and were trying to sell through, through some different avenues and then moved into the CSA market in, was it 1992? Yes, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about those early years as a CSA farm? Uh, yes, um, we started the CSA ultimately. We have been doing wholesaling and farmers markets and um, we were part of a a uh, wholesale cooperative, actually, and um, those those businesses are quite challenged at the time, mainly because um, a lot of a lot of large farms in California were starting to go into organics and starting to put in like test plots of like 500,000 acres or different things, and so the market was kind of you know become flooded, and so prices were really challenged just because the market had not really established itself yet. It was a very young market, so um, at that time we had some financial problems, and then actually um, our local banks, because there was not a lot of agriculture happening in this western side of the mountains uh, at that time here, uh, our bank kind of stopped lending us money, actually, uh, you know, for lines of credit to operate our farm. So we were kind of forced to figure out a way to generate income that didn't involve a line of credit. And so the CSA model, um, which had already been established in Japan and on the East Coast very briefly, um, was really attractive to us. And so the first years, it was a lot of explaining the idea of, like, you're prepaying for something you haven't received. You're actually supporting the farm and taking the risk along with the farmer. Um, all the, you know, those real central issues to how the CSA operates, nobody really knew about it. And so we did a lot of education early on, you know, of our, mem- you know, just early membership. Um, now, of course, most people kind of know what a CSA is. I mean, we still run across plenty of people that don't, but it's much more central in the, you know, in the organic industry. So, so for us, it was like one of the saving graces, um, you know, what really saved our farm from kind of going under, actually. It was, it was an economic model that like gave us a lot of, um, um, security and autonomy and um, it was, it's, so that's been really central to our business actually. And you started as a fairly small CSA and you're doing over a thousand shares now? Yeah, we started the first year at 75 shares and now we're right about a thousand and we figure we feed about 5,000 people per week off the, off the 40 acres we grow. Now in in the Seattle area, whenever I go out there, I'm always shocked because it's always green. Um, unlike, say, the upper Midwest where it's it's gray for eight months out of the year. Um, are you how, how many how many weeks of the year are you guys delivering? We deliver 18 weeks a year for our CSA, so about five and a half months. And are you doing any any kind of work with season extension? Are you taking stuff into the winter and and taking advantage of that milder weather? Or are you pretty strictly focused on that seasonal production? Um, again, as Sue sort of pointed out before, we farm at our convenience to some degree. I mean, of course, with you know best intentions for our CSA members, but we actually um, farm in what is a floodplain, and flooding can start as early as as November. So we really have learned the hard way that it's very important to end our season promptly and pick everything up and put it away. Um, 
in lieu of picking it up, you know, a month later covered in mud. So um, that's part of our motivation to end our season. And um, the rain can really, it's pretty incredible how it happens. I mean, there's a pretty hard and fast date, um, October 31st, Halloween, where the switch just gets flipped and the sky opens up and pours. So even though it's not necessarily going to frost or be cold there are it's a very it's a seasonal limitation we go and we haven't that we I mean we have greenhouses but they're more for start production and and personal use um we don't necessarily um although we do we're starting at dried bean production so that is going to extend our season but other than that no we don't and we really like that because um it means we get a certain amount of time off each year to pursue our other interests, which are many. So when you talk about, about seasonal flooding, so you guys actually get the Chehalis River coming up and over your farmland yes, uh, for yes. a period of time every year. Um, yes. I mean, it just depends on the year. Um, and we've had epic large floods where we've had water in our homes. And um, <clears throat> so they are. it can be epic like that, but it also can be like several minor floods that don't really affect us um, directly, but you don't know, and um, it's completely unpredictable, and like Annie said, starting November really till April, um, it could flood at any time, at on any level, and um, what we've been experiencing, too, is there is, you know, <clears throat> a certain element of climate change, like you were talking about, like, extend, you know, season extending, and how, like, the last few winters have been quite mild, but... Um, but I, I think, you know, it'd be foolhardy to pretend that that flood isn't, you know, going to come again. We've experienced, I think, eight out of the ten, the ten highest floods have occurred since we've lived here, and they've considered them 500-year floods. So, you know, that, that whole um, ecosystem in this area has changed. Upriver, up there's been a lot of um, development on the floodplain, which has changed the way the water flows into our valley. So we just, we don't, you know, we know where we live. We live on a floodplain. We <clears throat> certainly don't feel like victims of that at all, but we also feel like sometimes casualties of it. And we have learned the hard way and we didn't, we don't want to, we don't want to be, um, you know, like take the risk of planting crops out that will be flooded. It's, it hasn't been worth it in the past. So, um, and like Annie was saying, we really like to have downtime to um, explore other interests and um, it's really rejuvenating as a farmer to be able to do that because the farming season is really demanding and your time and your energy and your thoughts. And um, so having that time to have, you know, some downtime with our families is really important to us. I mean, it's funny. I, I grew up in the city in Seattle, so no awareness at all of the agricultural seasons. And to me, you know, the rainy season was just a, it was an inconvenience, but the idea that it actually uh, closes down the farm, I, I guess if I had thought about it, that would make a lot of sense, but I never, I never really thought about it that way. So thanks for helping me understand a little bit more about, about a place that I should know about. Really interesting. Yeah, we've had some really big floods, yeah. How does managing those floods tie in with, with the sorts of cultural practices you do around, around soil health and fertility, but also around, I would imagine that, that if you're anticipating water flowing over your ground, that, that practices like cover cropping really become even more important than they do in a situation where you've just got snow sitting on top of the, of the ground all winter long. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We definitely um, employ cover crops on all, all, all aspects of our field and pick up all our drip irrigation and, um, you know, uh, just try to really um, 
anchor our soil by having the cover crop established enough in fall to really provide anchorage because we have seen soil be whisked away by um, flooding in the past. Um, not our own, but um, so yeah, it's very important. So um, you mentioned in our in our pre-show chat that that you guys are doing a lot of work around this this concept of nutrient density lately. Um, can you talk about that and how that relates to your your soil management and the the challenges of of farming in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, yeah, we because of personal experiences, really started thinking um, long and hard about nutrition and its importance in human health. Did some really influential reading by an epigeneticist who basically um, was talking about what your DNA needs to be healthy, like talking about nutrition in terms of that and your DNA being able to fully express itself, which um, taking that concept and sort of applying it to soil was a very interesting and exciting to us. And um, there's very many um, crossovers, you know, it's, it's, they, they, inter, they interrelate very well, those two concepts. And so um, we really take pains to um, care for our soil. We like to think of in terms of not just sustainable agriculture, but regenerative, you know, leaving the soil better than we found it, if possible. Um, so we do soil testing and um, twice a year and then amend with trace nutrients. We use um, what's called micronutrients in the form of sea minerals. Uh, the, we use a brand called Sea Crop, which is a really neat product that comes um, from the coast of Washington, actually, um, from a really rich mineral seep. And they um, use reverse osmosis to remove the, the salt from the minerals and um, fluvic acid and other components of the sea crop. And then, um, so along with the macronutrients we apply, NPK and the like, we also use these micronutrients and they um, feed the microbiota in the soil and um, which in turn, you know, are really reliant on all these different um, elements which are contained within the sea minerals. There's 82 trace minerals, um, which just, they call it more of a fish finisher where it just really affects the plant's overall ability to be healthy and, again, to express its DNA. Um, so we found that by concentrating on the health of our soil, we've gotten a surprising amount of gain in all these other areas that we didn't even initially suspect that we would. Um, we've gotten um, pest resistance from using, from having improved nutrition for our plants. Um, they have immune systems that, when activated, can work to fight off both diseases and pests, um, and that we've really noticed that weak plants are vectors out in the field for diseases and insects as well. Um, so um, really keeping the plants healthy and keeping the nutrients in a steady supply too um, is something we've been working with to really keep the throttle open while the plant is growing and you have way less pest problems. So, and then also um, yield has increased. Um, shelf Post-harvest shelf life has really increased astonishingly. Um, so those are just some of the really great gains. Oh, and flavor, of course, because 
part of what your taste buds are trained to um, detect is nutrition in food. And so when food is really nutritionally, nutritionally complete, it actually has more flavor and is more appealing and flavorful to eat. So that has actually been a really wonderful um, benefit that we never knew would develop. And it sounds like that's something that you've noticed. Is that something that your CSA members have also noticed? I really think they have, yeah. We just get raised. And for instance, some plants are really, um, really like and respond very noticeably to the nutrition program they're on, especially the sea minerals. And for instance, with strawberries, it's just this complexity of taste and um, aroma. And it's, it's, we've been delivering them all over Olympia. It's the first berries of the spring and they're early. And um, just everybody, just you can't walk by the display without smelling this beautiful, sweet strawberry smell coming off the strawberries. And they're saying that like pretty much everybody that's walking in the store is walking out with one of these baskets of berries. And just really very gratifying to, to, to see that other people can and do appreciate that. Did you just say it was berry gratifying? Berry gratifying, <laughs> exactly. I like it. I like it. Um, so you talked about keeping the throttle open with, with getting the nutrients to the plants. How, how are you doing that on a functional level? We have a fertilizer side dresser um, on our cub and um, our farmall cub that um, while we cultivate, we can side dress with fertilizer. Um, so we, like for instance, most importantly is nitrogen throughout the season. So we use feather mail, we apply feather mail, and then also um, we spray with the fish fertilizer and then the um, sea minerals are sprayed three times a year. But we are currently... Um, trying to, we are putting together a system where we will be able to um, use those nutrients right through our irrigation system and our drip irrigation system. Interesting. And no, no concerns about clogging with the drip irrigation system? Um, I mean, it's filtered. You, you, there's several filters that passes through, so hopefully that won't be an issue, but never say never. We've yeah. had all <laughs> manner of terrifying things clog our irrigation over the years. So, snakes or back half of a rat or something. <laughs> that's a, that's that part about farming that nobody told you when you were at Evergreen, right? Totally, exactly. Right. <laughs> find the right size stick to unplug the mushed up snake as a of your irrigation pipe. Yeah. You guys manage the farm together as business partners. How does that go? I mean, obviously it goes well. You've been doing it for 25 years, but... I mean, I, I think about my experience managing a farm with my now ex-wife, you know, that, that was one set of dynamics. I, and I've, I've, I've worked with farms that had were run as partnerships that were outside of a romantic relationship. I'm really interested in how, how that functions on a day-to-day level. Uh, well, we, uh, I, well, to start, I think two heads are always better than one. And so that, and Annie's got a great brain. So <laughs> I think that, that, um, is really important. Um, and also working with another woman, I think that, um, the way we make decisions is really more kind of organic and, um, collaborative. 
um, which I think um, has led us to, to come up with really great ideas, you know. And um, I think the timing of my having children early and her having children later has been really great because she helped me raise my kids, and then now my kids are grown and she's got younger kids. And so um, having the ability to kind of cover for each other when we need to be away and those kinds of issues have kind of been um, really well balanced. And then I think over the years, for 25 years, we've both sort of fallen into the roles that we are the like strongest in, and that sort of kind of happened naturally. Um, so, so that that's been also really helpful. Just you know, I sort of cover my end, she covers her end, um, and it, it seems like that happened sort of organically over the course of the 25 years. Um, so I'm I'm really curious who covers what. <laughs> um, I take care of a lot of the accounting. And um, business stuff, and um, kind of the overall uh, management of the crew, and kind of tracking what they're doing. And um, Annie uh, does a lot of the seed ordering and seed planting. We kind of plan stuff together, but um, and then she does all the writing, and um, basically takes care of um, a lot of the nutrient management of the farm as we're uh, you know planting in the spring. Um, we're really collaborative out in the field in terms of what we're planting and where we're planting and kind of tracking all that together. But, um, but we both have, you know, different strengths. So yeah. So, and, um, and then she, uh, in the past has done more customer service, although now we have other people in our office that um, assist us in that as well. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we talk every day, we have meetings by ourselves with our people, you know, we're always, um, we're always communicating, you know, a lot. I mean, I think that's the success of any good business is that you have to have really open communication and have it happening all the time. And between employees as well. I mean, I, we work really collaboratively with our employees. And, I mean, it's kind of interesting because farming has – there's people are so dedicated, um, you know, despite the – crazy hours and low pay and whatnot, you know, that, I mean, to make use of that, I mean, that sounds sort of predatory, and it's not meant like that at all, but, you know, just to really, it's sort of like the way in the ski industry, like ski bums will be ski bums, you know, they practically pay to do it just because they're so driven by this passion for it, and I think farming is really analogous, like that people um, are really invested. That's what we found our employees, and and that again, this whole emphasis on culture and having culture really be a part of agriculture. Um, in that, we build our relationships together, our relationships with other people. My parents have moved here in the last ten years, and now they're we're farming on their land, and they're part of our business. Sue's son. Sue's partner, my children, my partner, um, you know, it's, and then, and then all of our employees, a lot of them have been really long-term employees as in like 10, 15 years and their families are involved and, um, it's just like, not only have we given rise to all this glorious produce over the years, we've really like grown a community and, um, you know, our, invested in our relationships with each other and it's been very fruitful. I mean, there's, you might, you know, there's, um, we, we're all a part of something I think really magical and special and we feel really lucky. Is there anything that you do intentionally to keep that, that magic going and that magic alive? Because I mean, I know they talk about this in relationships a lot, how, you know, in, in, in personal relationships, things have a tendency to fall apart if you don't if you don't give the relationship some care and feeding. Do you guys 
engage in some care and feeding because when you're when you talk about all of these other aspects, I mean, in some ways, having your your extended families involved in the farm could be a blessing and having your workers extended families involved in, in the farm could be a blessing. But but it's got to also put on different stresses and tensions, too. And I'd be interested to know as business partners what you do to keep your relationship vibrant. I mean, I think, again, this whole idea of it just being collaborative and being um Something we're all engaged in creating together, um, and hence, um, constantly learning and striving to improve and get more efficient. And, um, I think the really having a, a sense of mission underneath all of it has, is a very driving force because it just reinforces, it just helps you march through more difficult times because, um, I, I really have to say I do believe that, um, eating locally and eating vegetables and eating seasonally, all these things are really integral to our survival as a species. And in some ways, I think is a really good focal point for people kind of tossing about trying to figure out how to deal with climate change or make a difference or, you know, what, uh, that I think it's just a very, um, there's, there's no argument. Everybody needs to eat. Food is of, is, completely essential to our survival. And um, I think having healthy food and access to healthy food is incredibly important. So I think that that's the underpinning of why we do what we do. And it really helps us having our eye on the big picture constantly and trying to refine in terms of that is um, part of what keeps us really healthy, I think. I think it's really interesting in the in that west of the mountains area in Washington, when you talk about the importance of of creating a local food system, that it at the same time that that's kind of come to the forefront, that you've seen such massive development out there and so much loss of actual farmland in the in the the area between the the mountains and the and Puget Sound and the ocean. Um, you guys have been involved in some efforts to to kind of take that to a larger picture, right? Uh, yes, we have. Um, we received a PCC Farmland Trust <clears throat> grant this year, which is basically um, a, a conservation easement grant that's um, that we have to farm organically for the perpetuity of our property. So it's a way to actually not only secure farmland, but actually organic farmland. It's one of the only land trusts that actually is doing that. So we felt really lucky that that um, came about. It was about a three-year process. and. Um, it was just completed this spring, so that's really exciting. And um, it's very true about what's happening. You know, we have a lot of pressure here with development, and um, they're anticipating like 180,000 more people to move to our county in just the next 10 to 15 years um, based on projections of, you know, that we have water and, you know, that land is somewhat affordable for people. And there are people moving here from California as we speak. And there are farms, you know, larger farms in California, Central Valley buying land in eastern Washington and western Washington. So um, there is an anticipation of more pressure to develop and more people here. And we're really lucky that our governor is um, kind of a climate change activist, actually, and has been paying really close attention to that and has a lot of um, uh, a lot of different uh, plans to help mitigate some of that by trying to come up with ways to secure farmland and our, our shorelines and our rivers and um, because we do have water here 
even though we are experiencing a drought this year, we still have more water than um, where the food has been traditionally the last 50, 60 years been grown in, you know, Southern California. So um, there is, you know, there is an expectation that there will be a shift and we will be growing more food up here year round than we had in the past, um, you know, past 70 years or so. Previous to, you know, 50 years ago, everybody grew everything everywhere for the most part. Um, food truly was local. So it's, it's sort of a newish phenomenon, really, that food has been transported so far to, you know, where people are actually eating it. So, um, yeah, so so I think that that's going to become a really vital issue in the next 20 years here. The PCC Farmland Trust, now PCC is the Puget Consumers Co-op, which is the, the, I always think of it as a chain of food co-ops, but it's really one food co-op with a lot of different retail outlets throughout the Puget Sound area. Correct. Is, I think it's really interesting that they've they've gotten behind Helsing Junction as a, as a farmland partner here because you guys, from what I can see, don't don't sell anything to them. You kind of exist. You're, you're separate, but they're still, they're still willing to put their, their resources behind you guys. Right. Yes, absolutely. And they actually, um, they have, you know, their own land trust that came out of the co-op and they have conserved all kinds of land and, and many farms that aren't selling to them. Actually, their, their biggest, you know, mission really is to just save farmland in Washington state. And we were the first farm in our County that they, um, conserve. Most of the farms they had been conserving were, you know, closer to Seattle, King County, Skagit. Um, they did do one in Walla Walla, but um, they're branching out all over the state, and they're really effective, actually. They've been really successful in um, conserving quite a bit of farmland. So, um, like I said, they're, it's not about who's selling to them or, you know, access or any of it. They just want to secure farmland, and they know that we've been at it a long time, and we have, you know, a really strong commitment to, you know, our CSA members and our soil and our labor, you know, practices are, you know, fair. So they were really into supporting us, which was great. I just think that's really cool. And, and, and layer in on top of it, the idea that you have to be an organic farm. I just think that's, I mean, talk about really, uh, talk about really supporting um, what PCC is all about and saying, you know, this is, this is what really sets them apart. And, you know, in the, I mean, I have to get crass about it in the natural foods marketplace is that they're, they're organic and we're going to support organic farmers. And the idea that they've separated that from just defending their own food supply, I think is really, I just think that's so cool. Yeah. And they're, they're a great group of people. And um, the women that run that office, they're amazing women and have, um, they're very focused and they do not let go. When they decide they're going to do it, it gets done. So they've been really successful. And um, we've been really, it's been a great benefit for us. What kind of benefits does does having the Farmland Trust come in and invest in your farm bring to Helsing Junction? Um, well, I think, generally speaking, I think just the idea that we're going to be here for organic forever. And that means even when I retire. So whoever... Um, whoever we lease this land to in the future, which may be Annie's daughters, who knows? <laughs> uh, they may take over. We don't know. Um, uh, it, it makes it so, you know, um, there will be farmland in the future for this county. Because, um, like I said, the, the pressure to develop this county is really great. 
Um, and so in the future, I mean, we live in a valley that won't be developed because it is a floodplain. And that's the other thing. They, they were supporting us even though we're not even, even personally pressured to develop. It was really just to support the idea that, you know, you're going to secure this organic farmland. Um, and I just think anytime that's the focus in any county, I think that's a huge benefit. Eventually this will be kind of like a park down here because it will be undeveloped and most of the county, you know, will be filled in. So, um, I think it'll be a huge benefit for the county in the long run. Now, you've talked several times about um, about your workers on the farm, and and I can tell that the way that you approach farm labor is something. It's it's one of those approaches that throws language into a question, right? Because it's like, are you know, are they workers? Are they laborers? They're clearly more than just employees. Um, and you guys clearly have have really strong feelings about the people who help you to make Helsing Junction what it is. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about about who works on your farm and how they work with that? How you work with them? Well, we've had, like I said, like Annie had said, we have um, people that have been working here for ten to fifteen years. There's a um, a few a few families um, that now their kids are you know, teenagers and they're also working for us. Um, we love our employees. They, we, we consider them farmers. They, um, are all incredibly skilled people. I really get upset and so does Annie when people refer to farm laborers as unskilled labor. It's some of the most skilled labor, you know, that you'll, you'll come into contact with in the United States. We particularly, because we grow like a hundred different crops, they have to know the nuances of all those hundred crops. And, and it's a lot of knowledge. And so we really appreciate that knowledge. And um, as Annie was saying, too, they all are completely dedicated and motivated to grow this really nutrient-rich food. They all receive as much food as they want here. Um, you know, that's part of their, I guess, perk is that they get to take CSA shares home as well. Um, they also have their own gardens and grow out some of their own food that they want to eat and sometimes often sell, actually. So we've given them opportunities to kind of do their own farming here as well. And um, and then also we try to pay them a fair wage because, um, once again, that's sort of the hidden dirty secret of, you know, American farm labor is that those low prices are there for a reason. It's because we're paying people really less than they should be paid for the, some of the hardest work you know, that's out there. So um, we try to value all their skills and all their labor and all their dedication by giving them more money, which I think is really important. And that's part of being sustainable as well. And so with the CSA, once again, you know, a lot of our members we've had, you know, for 20 years and they are committed to the whole concept that, you know, we're trying to create a fair wage for people that are working really hard and growing their really amazing, you know, nutritious food. So um, the CSA has been really actually a dynamic part of that um, because we're not having to necessarily compete in the wholesale market. Um, there's no middleman, so we're getting to charge what we want to charge for our food, and um, that translates into being able to pay people more. And that's been really important to us. We would We don't feel good about paying people, you know, a low wage. It's just not fair. Um, we've been so lucky and um, we just love our employees. 
where are your employees coming from? Are they, are they mostly local folks? Are they people that have, have like you guys graduated from Evergreen or are they people coming from outside of the country? Um, we have had, we have a mix of all that. We have people that have moved here from other countries and have lived there, you know, came as children mostly. Um, so they are immigrants, but have been raised in the United States, but yet they still are, you know, um, from Mexico, but they are, they're truly farmers. They want to be here farming. They love they love the farm work too, actually, and um, and then yes, and then we have other different people. You know, not so much from Evergreen. Um, we have a couple people that have. Um, we have an, uh, actually a former um, Iraq War veteran working for us right now. We have another young man that has moved here from the East Coast that has been farming for many years and has been an incredible asset to us. Brought all kinds of new knowledge. Um, so yeah, it's just a kind of a mix of people. Annie and Sue, we're going to take a quick break here and get a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Osborne Seed Company. Osborne Seed is a vegetable, flower, and herb seed distributor serving both conventional and organic growers of all sizes. Unlike most seed companies that prepackage their seed in a minimal selection of packet sizes, Osborne packages their seeds to order, allowing you the flexibility to purchase the exact amount of seed you require. The company has built its business on a foundation of customer service, knowledgeable staff, and high-quality products. In business for 33 years, Osborne employees farmers with growing experience, a staff that is closely involved in variety trials, and customer and industry feedback to support its ability to excel in customer service. Because new varieties are trialed by the company and with growers, the whole team has the opportunity to experience products in the field, and everyone at the company can assist with growing and varietal questions because they have hands-on experience with the seeds Osborne sells. Grower visits, company trials, and breeder trials give valuable information necessary to finalize the varieties to be included in the catalog. Osborne Seed Company, high quality seed and superior customer service. New and existing customers get $5 off the first order of $50 or more when you mention the Farmer to Farmer podcast. OsborneSeed.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. The oldest producer of organic fertilizers in the United States, Fertrell has developed a reputation for excellent quality and service, and not just in growing crops. Fertrell also offers a full line of support for livestock producers, providing customers with recommendations for base rations that can be blended with their line of NutriBalancers, which are a special blend of minerals, vitamins, and direct-fed microbials to keep your livestock both well-fed and well-bred. They can also custom blend minerals to meet your specific nutrition needs. In the same way that soil provides a foundation for plants, you need high-quality support for your livestock, whether that's dairy or beef cows, poultry, horses, or alpacas. I like that Fertrell isn't just a fertilizer company. They're drawing on a wider variety of knowledge and applying their principles in a broad context that provides ample opportunities to observe the validity of their approach. Fertrell, better naturally. Fertrell.com. And I'm assuming that that with a thousand members, I mean, we haven't we haven't thrown out an acre number, but you guys are you're covering a lot of acres. And you mentioned, you know, even using the, of course, the cub tractor for uh, the farmall cub for cultivating. Um, I, I assume you're a fairly mechanized operation, right? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, we still do a lot of hand weeding and hand harvesting. And um, we're sort of right on the cusp of we have grown sort of slowly and organically. And we're to the point where we're sort of being forced, you know, we're becoming a mid-sized farm more. And, um, 
It, it is going to take a technological sort of leap forward, I think, with cultivation tools and the whatnot, um, transplanters, mechanical, mechanical transplanters and things that we are going to be investing in in the next few years. How many acres are you farming in vegetables each year? About 40. 40 actually in vegetables, or are you guys rotating in and out of crop ground? Yeah, it's 40 under cultivation and about um, 80 altogether that we're rotating through. And then we also share um, some ground with other farmers in the area. Sue rents some of um, her land to a flower farmer, and we have a friend that grazes sheep on part of our land, too. And that was something that really struck me uh, as I was looking through your website was the number, the amount of, of partner arrangements that you have with other food producers. You guys are working with a lot of different people to bring food to your customers, to your members. Yes, we are. Um, I think, as Annie was saying, our interest in um, a whole foods, you know, meal time, uh, you know, a, a full meal deal there. Uh, we, we were trying to make it easy for people to source um, whole foods that were high in nutrition. And we obviously don't and can't do it all. So we sought out our many of our neighbors, actually. Uh, we have a really big community of farmers here. Um, so we sought them out and um, enlisted sort of their products um, into our CSA. And so we basically have different shares that we offer in addition to the CSA shares that we create. And um, it's been really fantastic. A lot of people have really appreciated that. And now we're actually offering home delivery. So for a lot of people in Seattle, it's been a really convenient way to source really high-quality local organic food um, right to your door. And um, we're, like I said, we're just really lucky that our neighbors all around us are you know, creating all kinds of really good products. So um, we have yogurt, we have a tea share now. Um, we have a coffee roaster in our neighborhood now that will be providing coffee. Um, uh, and then once again, you mentioned the Olympia Provisions, salamis, and um, all kinds of products. And we have a web store that is actually only accessible to our, our current CSA members, and they can actually shop there and have more, you know, different items put into their box. The idea that, once again, we're just trying to create a really easy access um, for people. It's, it's been, and that's been part of our mission. So um, it's, been, it's been working really well for us. When you start talking about putting, putting special items into a CSA box, um, and I'm a fairly organized guy, but it gives me hives when you say something like that. What, can you tell me how that works logistically? Yeah. It's um, thanks to some, um, Data cloudware data management uh, data management cloudware, which um, which tracks all of our members, all of our orders. Uh, we run our harvest list through there. They can be spit out in Spanish or English. Um, it it we answer emails via that program. Um, so really, it, it, our billing happens through that program. So um, it prints us up a sticker with everybody's name, their drop site, um, their special order, if they have one right on there. And then um, thanks to our our um, packing shed manager, Valerie, who's a very incredibly organized, brilliant person, um, things get where they need to be. Uh, it's a process, and it's we're a crazy hive in the barn from... Um, 
5 a.m. to 8 a.m. three days a week, but um, we pack a thousand boxes, and I'm, of course, you're never supposed to brag when it comes to farming, because the goddesses really seem to punish you quickly, but um, we, we had a great year last year, let's put it that way. We were very, very organized, and thanks to Farmigo, this cloudware in particular, and I. All right. Yeah, the right the right tools and the right people make all the difference. Well, it's really it really is true that Farmigo we wouldn't have been able to expand into that kind of distribution system without it. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's as essential as any other you know tractor we have or anything. The most, I mean, pretty much. <laughs> Did you go with Farmigo specifically because of that that feature set, or was that something that you found and said, "Hey, there's this feature set here. Let's let's work with that." We were definitely shopping around for data management kind of software or, you know, that was right at more of the start of Cloudware. Um, but we definitely were because the burden of the data, you know, at that point was maybe we had 700 members was pretty overwhelming and it was index cards and access, um, or Excel and, um, <clears throat> and not very efficient, and um, we didn't have members' names on the boxes at that point, which created a lot of chaos. We had to send extra boxes to all the drop sites because, I mean, it's hard enough to get people to actually recognize their own name on a box and take the right box alone, <laughs> you know. Even even with all that nutrient-dense food, uh, sometimes yeah. the simplest <laughs> tasks are still, um, you know, more than more than the mental capacity allows for, yeah, right? Exactly. Oh. Now, now, where are you guys dropping your produce? We have a lot of drop sites. We have probably 60, I want to say, at this point. Yeah, um, like that. We are as far north um, as North Seattle or even, I mean, Linwood, actually. Um, and then uh, our neighbors are also CSA farmers, and they have a delivery down to Portland on Tuesday. So we have a Portland route. With, they, they deliver our Portland route for us, which is lovely. Um, and then we're also out to the coast um, in Aberdeen and Hoquiam and um, so, and, and then Tacoma, all over Olympia. And, and then now with home delivery, too, in um, both Olympia, Seattle, and Portland. Um, we were, were covering the area pretty well, I, I can say confidently. Are you dropping at members' homes then as, as drop sites? Or are you working with, with food co-ops to, to host your sites? It's mostly members' homes, but it's also businesses. And um, that's something we've been working on, too, is trying to have drop sites at businesses. And then in the last few years, State office buildings in the Olympia area. Olympia is the capital of Washington State. So there's lots of state office buildings, and um, they can have CSA drops now. Um, and so there's quite a bit of that too um, in office buildings. I love that. The state really putting their uh, putting their money where their mouth is. That's great. It is great. It's uh, great. And are you guys handling your own? Tr I mean, you mentioned that you you have a partner that takes your your produce down to Portland. But when you're heading heading north and west, are you handling all of your own deliveries? Uh, yes, we have a delivery drivers, and then we actually have satellite drivers in um, Seattle that um, they meet and then take other boxes from a central location to other drop sites. And then we have home delivery people too. So um, we're doing all of that on our own, with the exception of the one in Portland. That's an incredible logistical challenge, I would think. 
It can be, but once again, with Farmigo, we, it's amazing streamlined, um, uh, system, you know, you basically put in your route as you are going to deliver it and the labels, you know, get printed out in the order of which you're going to pack your truck. So it's extremely streamlined and like, you know, we wouldn't have been able to expand so many drop sites, so many different kinds of shares, the partner shares, all that without having that tool. Wow. Even just something as simple as the labels printing out in the right order. Oh yeah. What yeah. a, it's brilliant. what a huge, yeah, so, somebody was somebody was thinking. Yeah, and then that. we further tweak that because every drop site has a different colored label. So you don't have to read all the labels. You can just know, like, oh, I need 11 yellow boxes at this drop site and then find them that way. So it's, it's, it is really efficient and pretty incredible, actually. Are you delivering in, in wax cartons then? No, we have... Um, corrugated plastic boxes that um, we bought at a trade show for CFAs that are designed specifically for CFAs. and They have our logo on them, all cute. And we, we, we wash and reuse them, and we have for years. And they're holding up beautifully. It was a really big investment, but um, it paid for itself in like two years because yeah. the amount of wax boxes we were going through was really ridiculous. And on top of that, the landfill aspect to that was really we've tried to um we've tried to switch up our packaging to be far more sustainable than it was in the past we also charged our members for those boxes so we didn't even directly we just tacked the fee on to the box because of the shares that year and the next year so anyway. as a deposit yeah. as a deposit because right. people do keep them yes but um but generally speaking it did um also help pay um for them and it was a, it was a great investment so when you say that that um, that you do it as a deposit, people keep them. So are you actually tracking whose boxes you get back? You can't, sadly. It's quite I wouldn't difficult. Think so. And ironically, it's always our friends or people that like get CSA shares for free. That <laughs> oh, you know, you know, you know who's the worst at returning boxes in in any CSA that I've ever been a member of was was me. Oh, I mean, I, and, and right? I, and I know, and I mean, you know, I mean, I've, I've been on both sides of that. I'm horrible about it. I mean, it's just, I, I'd like to think that it's not a reflection on our moral rectitude or anything like that. <laughs> no. Um, how, how are you washing those? Uh, with a pressure washer and some, uh, there's a low impact uh, cleanser that we use. Okay. And um, we also have, in our own harvesting, we've switched to these um, really nice plastic crates which we also scrub and wash in between use. And actually, some of our wholesale orders that we do do, we do very few, but um, have accepted them on those, and we just get them back rather than using the uh, wax boxes. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and actually, wholesalers are starting to look at that as a, because, you know, the wax boxes have become quite expensive. So um, a lot of wholesalers are starting to look at the idea that, you know, we could be using these reusable plastic tubs that are far better for the produce because it keeps it much fresher. So. You know, when I was in, in Italy, and this has been 10 or 11 years ago, um, I visited a farm over there where the, the grocery chain that they were selling to would actually bring them cleaned and sanitized harvest and packing totes. No and way. then they would pack the produce in them and they would, they'd swap them out. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, uh-huh. the, that's the wave of the future in the U S too. That's civilized. Yes, that is. <laughs> <laughs> Europe is so civilized. So yeah, it's almost like the West coast. Yeah. You know? uh, <laughs> We're the popular version of them though. 
You're, you're, I'm sorry, you're the what? The sloppier version here. Okay. <laughs> we can only, only aspire. So, I mean, interesting. I mean, you guys have just talked about some logistical changes with the CSA over the last few years with the, with Farmigo as, as helping you to be able to organize and offer the partner shares. You've talked about, um, you know, just switching from sort of the, the old customary wax cardboard boxes to, to using the plastic containers. What other, what other kinds of changes have you seen in the Pacific Northwest in the last 20 years with CSA? We've really tried to focus on um, making our CSA a kit, that just trying to make it as easy as possible for people to eat the vegetables. I mean, one thing we realized pretty early on was that people don't cook, and um, the amount and variety of vegetables that get thrown at you as a CSA member is very overwhelming. Like, it's it's more of like vegetable college than kindergarten that like some people need. And so, um, you know, the first box you're getting is full of scapes and beets and arugula and bok choy and things that are lovely, but definitely require recipes or knowledge uh, to use properly. And people can be intimidated and the shelf life's short and whatnot. So, um, We've really found focusing our efforts on helping people get through the box. Um, so one of the tools we offer is, is which is new, is this um, vegetable glossary. So when we send out a packing list to members each week with exactly what's in there, and then there's a picture uh, of the box with a beautiful handwritten label saying what each item is, which Sue does, and she takes really the most magnificent pictures you can imagine. They're lovely. Um, um, so that's a great tool. People have that tool, and then they can click on the name of the vegetable in the packing list, and that takes them right to our glossary, which provides all this different cultural information. Um, it'll tell you how to store the vegetables. It'll tell you um, how long their shelf life is. It, it gives um, a list of complementary um, vegetables or the like that go well with that vegetable in the glossary. Uh, it gives you easy recipes. It gives you harder recipes. So it just really um, it's very intensive hand-holding for people that need it. And some people don't. And so um, we just like to but we really, we really have found that provide, I think that's because there's a lot of other CSAs in the area and um, I, no one I don't think has quite the level of um, help or hand-holding or recipes that are really tailored to the box that we do. And I think that is, that in our customer service has been one of the ways that we think we has helped grow our CSA along with all the other things we do, like the variety and choice and whatnot, but definitely that as well. I think that picture guide, that clickable picture guide, that's, that's just brilliant because I, I mentioned to you earlier, my mom was actually a member in your CSA and this must be 15 years ago because it was when I was getting started farming and I would get calls from her asking for help doing vegetable identification over the phone, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, trying, this was back before the days of Skype and, and video chat and all this stuff. So I'd be trying to figure out which, which vaguely round shaped root vegetable she was dealing with this week, you know, <laughs> I like that. So, and, and you mentioned that you guys, I, one of the things you like about your CSA is, is that it enables you to charge the kinds of prices that you need to be able to pay your, your workers, the kinds of, of wages that, that they need. Have you found downwards price pressure in the marketplace there in Seattle? 
Well, and actually, I mean, I think our prices are really competitive. I think this is the secret to CSAs and why I think they're really amazing is because that that price that gets set is pretty artificially created. It's not really based on the amount of input it takes to grow said crop. Um, and the things that decrease prices are subsidies of water or power or um, people that farm as a loss or, you know, there's different reasons why these prices are depressed and they're big reasons and they're not reasons that there's not there, there's no answer to those problems on a on like a personal level really. So CSA is really brilliant because it sort of short circuits the problem altogether because as a CSA farmer you're selling a wholesale product at a slightly below retail cost. And so the savings in labor that that engenders is where the you're you're not actually being paid more. I mean, you you're keeping more of what you're being paid. Is the concept? You're not actually being paid more, or, or uh, yeah, you're really not. So, oh, that's that's great, and and it is. I mean, I think that if you're able to if you're able to hold on to that that competitive price and and realize some of those efficiencies that go along with with being a good operation with a great labor crew. I mean, that really that can really make a difference. I think in the marketplace. It really and, can. And it is. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to ask Sue to talk about, because um, she's just done a whole lot of cost analysis of our business, um, which I thought was really salient, so I don't know if she wants to speak to that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, um, in, in analyzing, like, how, how our money comes in and how it goes out and how, how you know, how much each share actually costs to actually deliver and um, we've we've gotten to a place where we can actually put numbers to that, and so it's been really helpful in terms of just um, cash flow projections and all that kind of stuff. But um, ultimately, we have operated our business without with very little bank support, and um, we've been we we created something called the sustaining memberships many years ago that um, has helped us to buy different like hard assets like tractors and trucks and different things like that. Essentially, we offer a CSA member a two-year subscription um, at a discount, and we only take 10 or 12 or 15 of those, and we end up with 10 or 12 or $15,000, and we've been able to reinvest that into the farm and just pay it back with vegetables. So that has been brilliant. And um, But I think as far as... Um, a long-term business strategy, you know, the business end of things, and I think a lot of farmers go into business not thinking about that aspect, is really important. Um, and growing really fast can be really dangerous and can put you out of business. So, um, you know, the idea that, you know, you're just going in sort of blind is, I think, not not really, it's kind of foolish. And I, and um, because the margins are so small with farming, you definitely want to have, you know, a business plan you know, that's centered in reality as opposed to, you know, a business plan that's sort of like romanticized version of, you know, a farm. <laughs> and selling more produce doesn't necessarily make you more money. Yeah, exactly. Like higher sales don't always equate higher profits. And um, it's really about the efficiencies that, you know, is where you're going to make up those those margins. So, um, and like, for instance, you know, we hired this young man this year who's extremely efficient and has brought us immediately into a more efficient, you know, system for all different reasons. Um, and so, you know, just small changes can make a huge impact. And so once you get your calculator out and start really looking at that, 
you know, you can you can gather up thirty thousand dollars just by inefficiencies in a year. So easily, easily. So so it's been something that you know we've been also as we've gotten bigger, um, have had to pay more attention to, and um, it's been a, a huge learning curve, but it's been a really enjoyable learning curve. I never knew I could like be so excited about accounting. <laughs> it's not my nature, you know, it is, but <laughs> it's actually it is, worked it out. It is kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think being a farmer, you have to be a jack of all trades or a Jane of all trades, and you can't, you know, you. I mean, Annie and I joke because, like, we're not mechanics. We hire mechanics. Like, we do hire out things that we just don't want to do or can't do, and don't have any interest in learning to do. I mean, we're not, you know, we can't do it all. But at the same time, with a farmer, you really do have to have all these different skills. You know, not only do you have to know how to farm. But you also have to have like HR, you know, labor relations. Your business has to be intact. You have to be able to do accounting. You have to be able to do marketing. Marketing is huge. Marketing, especially, you know, when mentioning just the changes in the Northwest, like we have a lot more competition. I think that's healthy and I don't, you know, we're not necessarily threatened by that in any way because I think there's always more room for more of it. But, um, but it's still, you know, you have to distinguish yourself and that's marketing. So it's just, you know, all these different aspects of farming, um, you know, you, you have to be able to kind of have some kind of relationship to that, those, those kind of skills. Um, and I think like Annie and I's strengths is that she's a really great writer, that she also studied that in school and that does a lot of writing. And I'm a visual artist. So like in terms of marketing, that's been a brilliant marriage there. Yeah. And plus you get to use your college degree. Yeah. <laughs> My parents are very happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as we all know, it's all about keeping the parents happy, right? Yeah. And yeah. That's... <laughs> Tell me a little bit about about your life outside of the farm. I mean, you guys have months off during the winter. You mentioned actually liking that because it gives you the opportunity to pursue some other things. Um, and I know that well, you mentioned that visual artist aspect. I mean, I'm I'm guessing that that's something that you're delving into in the winter time a little bit more fully. Uh, yeah, I try to. Yes, I I do. Um, I do oil painting and I actually show work and sell work, and so that's been something that I didn't want to ever really not be able to have access to. I have a studio at the farm, which is really nice. Um, and then, of course, you know, photographing all our vegetables has been incredibly inspiring, and that's not something I ever really was trained to do, but, like, it's been, you know, something that's really been motivating and fun for me. Um, so those are all your pictures on the website, I assume. Pretty much, yeah. Those are, I mean, I I, I love them. Oh, thank Just, you. They're fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it's really interesting to have watched the evolution of our photos, too, because I mean, the first year we were like, when we hit upon the idea of like, oh, we want to, you know, lay all the vegetables out that we're harvesting this week, each week and tag them with the name. And, you know, so it was kind of just like this higgledy piggledy pile. And now it's, it's like, it's incredibly organized and linear and, um, I've become kind of obsessed with the symmetry thing. That's so beautiful. And they're so beautiful because of it. Well, you know, you, you think that taking pictures of vegetables, I mean, it, it sounds relatively simple until you try to do it. And then you realize, like, just how bad of a photographer you actually are. If you're me. Exactly. Um, you know, yeah, so I, I, over, I, over the course of the last several years, it's been a, it's definitely been a learning curve for me. But it's so know. cool because she's doing it all with the iPhone too. So, you know, it's very simple. It is actually, you know, there's a simplicity to it and, um, and it's very, very lovely. Yeah. It's been it's great. Be- beautiful and hip. I like it. Yeah. Yes. Like and it. now we're sort of kind of trying to come up with a new newsletter where we're embedding 
videos, mini videos in the newsletter and really trying to visually communicate, um, you know, bring the farm to our members because as much, you know, I think that that creates community, you know, just be people being able to imagine themselves there and know that they are what they're, by putting their money where their mouth is, they are really helping to create this beautiful space and as CSA members also have access to it. Very cool. And I think that idea of making it more real to them is, is so important. Well, and that's one of the limitations of CSA because it is our storefront, literally. And especially in the winter when we're selling something that doesn't even exist yet. Um, so it's really important to give them, you know, something to really imagine, you know, that they're going to receive this beautiful box of food and they can really see that now. Um, you know, because we just don't, we don't go to farmer's markets and we're not necessarily in any stores or like that is our storefront, literally. That's our window dressing. Right. Annie, what do you, what do you do during the off season for, for recharging and rejuvenation? I have um, nine year old twin girls. So that really keeps me hopping. <laughs> um, that's another full time job. And it's been really wonderful um, as they've evolved just their participation in the farm and enjoyment of living out in the country and being on the farm. And I mean, they really seem to, resonate with it at a pretty deep level, which is really gratifying. And also watching Sue's son do the same. Um, he actually runs our music fest that we have in August, and he has for the past 10 years, and um, speaks Spanish and is on really great terms with all the employees and has worked on the farm. And um, so that's that's been a really great thing. And um, as far as um, my, my husband, for, for 10 years, um, my husband is in the ski industry, and um, so every winter we would actually move house up to Snoqualmie Pass and spend the winter up there snowboarding, which is really, really fun and a good complement to a farming lifestyle, although we are down from the mountains now with the twins in school and whatnot. But, um, yeah, that's what I've been doing in winters and writing. I'm trying to um, actually, both Sue and I are collaborating and I'm promoting well, and I don't, and I don't want to interrupt any, but you have also been doing an incredible amount of research about nutrition, and that has been huge in our business to take out all that information and translate that into the soil and into the food, and um, it's, it's been an amazing process to watch. And literally, you know, she could have a nutrition degree <laughs> at this point. It's really cool. It's really clear that you guys bring a lot of passion to the farm. You know, and, and from a lot of different areas. I mean, just mentioned the the music festival that you guys have in August. I mean, and I think it's this funny way that agriculture ties everything together, right? So I'm I'm going from talking about nutrition and your studies in nutrition, and I'm going to try to make a tie into this to the Helsing Junction sleepover, which happens in in August of every year. Um, and I just think, I think there's really something there in all of that connection. But I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear more about the, about the music festival. Uh, how, I mean, how much more typical could you get, right? You're going to have a music festival on an organic vegetable <laughs> farm. I mean, that just. <laughs> well, uh, we started, it was our 11th year. And the first year, it was basically a co-host the uh, event with K Records, which is a small label um, in Olympia, Washington, that's also been around about the same amount of years that we have, and um, they have a fair amount of different um, musical performers that um, come and play, and um, so, yeah, I think you're right about the culture of agriculture, so this is a place where all this sort of kind of gets together and meets, 
because it's all about local music. Um, and for the K uh, performers, they don't always get to see each other perform. So for them, it's almost like a little summer camp where they get to actually see, you know, the other people that are signed on their label to, you know, perform. And then um, because of the three-day event and people are camping, we provide food for them in different different ways. And we've always had um, a certain nonprofit, you know, different one every year who gets to basically uh, provide a lot of the food for the three days and they get to, you know, keep the profits from that. We basically donate all the um, produce and um, food for that for them to prepare. So, um, so that's like, this is just like a really great community event in that way. Um, we're trying to support, you know, whatever nonprofit is there through our food and then they're getting to expose themselves to a whole bunch of people, um, that are there for the event. And then of course all the musicians get to see each other. And then I think one of the big, you know, biggest pluses for the people who attend is that the musicians are part of the party. It's not, there's nothing separate. And so, like, we've just heard people, like, exclaim, like, oh, I got to swim with, like, my favorite musician, you know, or, like, sit next to them and watch the other favorite musician, you know. So there's, like, this sort of, like, openness um, about the whole thing where it is just really about creating a really fun community event that's centered on, you know, everything happening right there locally. I got so cool. And it is a great event. And we don't advertise it. In, in any real great way. We don't want it to get too big. We like the intimacy of it. We like the size of it. It's been really fun. It's not overwhelming, and it's just every year it's just a great, a great event. People, There's certain people that come like every year. It's like their big event of the summer. Now we've talked about it on the national podcast. Yeah, right. you know, you're gonna oh, have yeah. It's going it's to be like Woodstock all oh, over wow. again. I don't think so. <laughs> we were laughing last year because we had uh, food carts at the event. I mean, before we'd had just the food booth or whatnot, but uh, late night food. But this year we had all these different food carts. And we're like, like, how great it is to be on the farm with like this alley of food carts. Are doing some food, really? Yeah, because we're, I mean, and we literally had neighbors coming by just to get snacks and stuff. They, they're like, what, how often do you have a food cart party like yeah, in, totally. alley in, the of, in the middle of Rochester? R- rural Washington State. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. I love it. I love it. All right. So let's, um, let's turn to the lightning round. Okay. And, uh, and hit you with a, hit you, hit you with a couple of real straightforward questions here. Um, so, so I, and we talked about this ahead of time, and I think you guys actually said you're going to take turns uh, talking here. So who's who's fielding the question about your favorite tool on the farm? Um, I will, but I feel like I kind of already touched on that in that it is, for me, in, with, in my personal day-to-day, what I do on the farm, it would definitely be our cloudware system, Farmigo, because um, of how it, it changed the way we manage data completely. and changed the way that we interact with our members, um, changed our finances through our CSA, that it's just been, like Sue said, just a very invaluable tool, along, as, as important as a tractor, especially at the size and complexity that we're at, um, and especially in the, in the environment we're in, the Northwest is a pretty wired place, and so I think that if we hadn't sort of adapted some more high-tech, some of the more high-tech um, tools that we use now. I mean, there's, I, I would hope that our vegetables would sell themselves, but at the same time, giving our members access um, is 
to their own accounts, to a web store, um, to our e-newsletter, communicating successfully with them via email on a very, um, like, in real time. Um, all those, which we, a lot of that we do through Farmigo has really enhanced our business. Next question that we've got for you is, is what's the most challenging crop that you continue to grow? Um, I would say the brassicas family. We have had challenges with brassicas in general with different bug problems and fertility just because they stay in the ground kind of a long time. And so over the course of the years, we've just, um, you know, really attended to trying to figure out what what would be the best way to do that. So we've, we've taken some new approaches and it's definitely working and we're happy about that. Um, so, uh, but it's, they, they are challenging. We have, we have a lot of, um, aphids and, um, flea beetles and slugs. Like we just they, they seem like they take more hits than other plants for whatever reason on our farm. So when you say you have slugs, are these, cause out here in the Midwest, people don't understand slugs, right? I mean, do you guys have like those big mm-hmm. six or eight inch long banana slugs that come in and eat on your garden plants? We do, and they're not that bad. But as we've changed our soil fertility program where we're not tilling as much, actually we're trying to do a very low till. It doesn't, you know, tilling kills a lot of things in the soil, including slugs. Um, so even like we're having this like, kind of epic dry season and quite early season, but there's still slugs out there, which is kind of weird. We're just kind of like, wow, that's bizarre. But... um but yeah, I mean, generally speaking, they have had more more um, hits uh, on them, and um, so, like I said, we've just taken a different approach. We've plant, planted some of them in plastic to warm them up, get them to grow faster. Um, just different thing, you know, covering them. Um, and once again, really, it's side dressing. We have our side dresser, you know, with our um, on our cubs, so we can actually spot them in to certain crops exactly what they need. And I think that that's Help a lot, but they are, and it's funny because like we're not the Northwest is known to be like a really great place to grow brassicas, but we've always sort of had a challenge with them. I think it's a great place to grow brassicas with chemical support. Yeah, I mean, probably, that's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're probably I, right I, about I mean, that. It, it really does make a lot of difference when you've got that kind of a crotch. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yes. But we love brassicas and we want to grow them, and um, we're happy that they're doing better now. Definitely, last year they did way better, so that was very very encouraging. And you feel like that the nu- the nutrient program that you're doing is having a, a really big effect on those? It really is. I mean, for instance, um, something that stays in the ground a long time is Brussels sprouts. And it was so apparent with aphids that the weak plants were the vector for the aphids. And those plants would just be covered in aphids. And then a healthy plant next door would have very little to no aphid damage. And... Um, so, you know, on many levels, we couldn't see that this is... And also using... I mean, of course, we use um, Rene on brassicas, too, and that gives a real boost, too. You know, it's easy to see that these tools work in doing their job. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would that be? Well, I would say pace yourself. Um, like we were saying, uh, you know, the farm can take over your life. There's always going to be more to do. There's always going to be more chores. There's always going to be something to attend to. But I really think um, you have to place yourself in a place where it's not sustainable to, you know, kind of keep up with that crazy pace your whole life. And so um, I think it's really important to decide from the beginning that, you know, you have a life and that you need to take downtime, that you need to 
rejuvenate yourself after a farm season or during the farm season. Um, so I would just, because I, you know, you can injure yourself just from working too much too. So I just, I think once again, it's essential to honor yourself, love yourself as much as you're going to love your plants and crops and land that you have this relationship with because without that kind of self-love and self-care, you're not going to be able to sustain the business anyway. So, um, and, you know, Annie and I both have tried to really maintain that kind of um, structure in the business. So it's allowed us to kind of have a, a, a more rich life. And we yeah, have. We're really lucky. We're, we're some of, we felt so lucky. We're one of the lucky ones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say for me it would be um, to focus on the fertility of the soil um, because it's solving problems at the root level at which they originate um, instead of trying to put a Band-Aid on something like after it has a pest problem, um, doing more preventative, by, by focusing on the fertility of your soil, you're farming in a more preventative manner. You're not going to encounter that problem in the first place. I think that's something that's so easy to ignore. I mean, both of those things really when you're, when you're getting started, because there's a certain degree to which your enthusiasm and and kind of the native fertility of what's in the soil can can carry you through for a for a few years before true. things really start to fall apart. And that is That's very exactly true. right. That's right. And yeah. that investing in the soil will pay off in the long run on so many different important levels, and you'll just everyone will be happier for it. It's a benefit to the to the farmer because you're eating that food, and it's going to benefit you um, to stay healthy as well. So, you know, once again, focusing on the soil because that is a source of life um, is really the most important thing on a farm, and it will translate out to everything else. And Annie and I still, after 25 years, like, wake up every day in full gratitude, the mystery of, like, seeds germinating, still thrilling. We have never lost that whole reverence for what we're doing and reverence for nature, and um, so it's still really exciting to us. Sue and Annie, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for making the time here in, in early June to, to share Helsing Junction Farm with us. Well, we really appreciate being here. Thank you. Thanks for all you do, Chris. We really appreciate it. It wouldn't happen without folks like you out there on the ground. Thank you. Come to our music fest. You're invited. Absolutely. Please come. <laughs> okay. See, it's gonna, I told you it's going to go international. <laughs> All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 18 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Helsing. That's H-E-L-S-I-N-G. I really do put a lot of effort into the show notes, making sure that we have especially the links for the things that people mentioned on the show and I mean, when there's a link that's associated with it. I assume you're not sitting at your desk taking notes while you're listening to the podcast and you've got other things going on and hopefully are using both of your hands because that's the best thing to do when you're when you're working on the farm so uh, i've tried to capture those things so that you can go back and search for it later and make it easy to find thank you to everyone who has taken the time to leave a rating or review on itunes the more fresh comments we get the higher it drives the show and the itunes ratings which really does make a difference in how many people this show reaches that's really what i'm in it for so i, I really appreciate that thank you so much 
If you like what you hear here, think about signing up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or at purplepitchfork.com. And one more thing, if you hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listener, have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook or at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know. I won't mention your name on air. You know, you can also ask questions uh, directly to me. I'm more than happy to answer them. I may take a little while to get back to you, but I do respond to all of my emails. If we choose your question to use on air, I'll even send you a farmer to farmer podcast mug. Thank you again so much for listening. I hope you're having a great spring. I hope the crops are bountiful. I hope that the drought out east is going to straighten itself out and that the drought out west is going to straighten itself out and the floods down south straighten itself out and it just turns into the most beautiful farming year ever. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you so much for the work that you do in sustaining all of us who are eating your food. Take care. Have a great week. Keep the tractor running.